was in love with Lansing's wife, and the jury sent him to his death firmly and unanimously with what a Chicago paper called shameless calm. Old Judge Crittenden's admonition to the jury on this point was particularly weighty. He enjoined them, with something approaching a wink of connivance, to perform their solemn duty. And they did. To out-of-town reporters, the trial was a farce, and it soon became a scandal in the upper Mississippi Valley. The defense raged, the newspapers sneered, telegrams rained upon the governor's mansion in Springfield. But Coaltown knew what it knew. This silence about the guilty relations between John Ashley and Eustacia Lansing did not proceed from any chivalrous desire to protect a good lady's name— there was a solider foundation for silence than that. No witness ventured to voice the charge, because no witness was in possession of the smallest evidence. Gossip had solidified into conviction, as prejudice solidifies into self-evident truth. Just as the moment when public outrage was at its height, John Ashley escaped from his guards. Flight tends to be interpreted as an acknowledgment of guilt, and questions concerning motive became irrelevant. It is possible that the verdict might have been less severe if Ashley had behaved differently in court. He showed no signs of fear. He afforded no fascinating spectacle of mounting terror and remorse. He sat through the long trial listening serenely, as though he expected the proceedings to satisfy his moderate curiosity as to who killed Breckenridge Lansing. But then, for Coaltown, he was an odd man. He was practically a foreigner. That is, he came from New York State and spoke in the way they speak there. His wife was German and spoke with a slight accent of her own. He seemed to have no ambition. He had worked for almost twenty years in the mine's office on a very small salary, as small as the second-best-paid clergyman's in town, in apparent contentment. He was odd through a very lack of striking characteristics. He was neither dark nor light, tall nor short, fat nor thin, bright nor dull. He had an agreeable enough presence, but one that seldom attracted a second glance. A Chicago reporter, at the beginning of the trial, repeatedly alluded to him as our uninteresting hero. He changed his mind later. A man on trial for his life who exhibits no anxiety arouses interest. Women liked Ashley, because he liked them, and because he was an attentive listener. Men, except for the foreman in the mine, paid him little attention, though... Something in his self-effacing silence aroused in them a constant attempt to impress him. Breckenridge Lansing was big and blonde. He crushed everyone's hand in genial friendship. He laughed loudly. He did not restrain himself when he was in a rage. He was gregarious. He belonged to every lodge, fraternal order, and association that the town afforded. He loved the rituals. Tears came to his eyes, manly tears, he wasn't ashamed of them, when he swore for the hundredth time to maintain friendship with the brothers until death.
and to live under God in virtue and be prepared to lay down his life for his country. It's vows like that, by golly, that give meaning to a man's life. He had his little weaknesses. He spent many an evening at those taverns up the river road, not returning home until morning. This was not the behavior of an exemplary family man, and Mrs. Lansing might have had some reason to resent it. But in public places, at the volunteer fireman's picnic, at the school's graduation exercises, he showered her with attentions. He broadly displayed his pride in her. It was generally known that he was incompetent as resident manager at the mines, and that he seldom showed up there before eleven. As a father, he had certainly failed in the rearing of two of his three children. George was held to be...